I'm in like a little tiny apartment now, so I don't have anywhere to put my cats, and sometimes they meow while I'm recording. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want, to connect with is totally up to you and we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in north america europe asia and australia open to relocation let them know your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance and if you go check them out at the show's link that's hire.com javascript jabber you can get double the hiring bonus that they offer that's 600 instead of 300 so go check them out at hire.com javascript jabber today Hey, everybody, and welcome to the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Amy Knight. Hello from Nashville. Uh, playing the part of both both host and guest, Corey House. Hi, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A quick shout out about Angular Dev Summit coming up in September. Go check it out. Now, Corey, you suggested this topic as React, or reusable React components, but you also mentioned that a lot of these concepts can kind of apply to other things across JavaScript, but but let's back up. Do you want to just kind of give us an overview of what we're talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're in an interesting spot as JavaScript developers today because uh, we're finally in a place where we can write reusable components in a way that is really very lightweight. Uh, it doesn't take a, a very much framework-specific code to get things done. That's particularly what I like about React's model, but that's not uh, necessarily specific to React. There are other uh, really compelling libraries out there for doing reusable components. I mean, backing up a little bit, the story was back in, I think it was around three years ago, I was really excited about the Web Component Standard. And the whole idea of the Web Component Standard was, wouldn't it be great if all of us as front-end developers could share our components with each other? It wouldn't be a matter of, oh, well, Joe's in Angular and I'm in React, so we can't share the good things we built because it's square peg, round hole. It just that they are two fundamentally different ways of getting something done. But the web component specifications that, hey, if we can all build to the same specification using the platform, then we could all share our work. And that would be a huge win for the entire community. And this is just the sort of thing that happens in industries as they mature. What you see is uh, as industries mature, they come up with standards and then everybody does things the same way so that um, you don't have these issues where two different companies put in hard work, but they can't leverage each other's good stuff. So what's happened, though, is Web Components continues to be an interesting uh, 
standard, but we're at this weird spot where people continue to reach for JavaScript libraries instead, and in particular, React, Angular, Vue are probably the three most popular ways to do reusable components today. Now, React is the flavor that I prefer, but really, it's uh, you can't go wrong with any of those big three. And of course, those are just three of the most popular other ways to get it done. And what I think is interesting is there are um, a few reasons that JavaScript libraries have become the popular way to get it done, even though we have the standard sitting out here. Um, not the least of which is while the standard is here, the standard isn't implemented across the board in all browsers. So we have a, a browser support issue. And then that means that people reach for polyfills, polyfills like Polymer, um, that let you do standardized components. And while Polymer is interesting, you, you do have to ask yourself, if I'm pulling in a polyfill to get these things done, I'm not truly using the platform. The idea of just standard based components is I should be able to use the platform um, all by itself. And once I reach for Polymer, that's me saying the platform isn't quite sufficient for my needs all on its own. So I have like a quick question. I started watching your course on Pluralsight and you pointed this out as this being like a reason why people are not reaching for web components. But to take that like one step further, do you mm -hmm. think it's just a, a matter of time or why are the browsers not rushing to implement this? Yeah, so there's there's a couple things. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because I've been, uh, I've frankly been pretty frustrated about how the standard never really caught fire. And, and which is a funny thing for me to say as somebody who's known for being really excited about React. Effectively, what I'm excited about is uh, also is just getting things done in a, a way that's relevant for today. And when I look at the, the picture today, React makes all sorts of sense, uh, which we'll talk about more in a moment. Um, but the, the other reason that people aren't reaching for standardized web components is that, strangely enough, the story in JavaScript libraries is really um, arguably easier. Um, it is... Arguably, uh, you have more power, more flexibility, uh, more choices, and in the end, um, also may find that you, strangely enough, get uh, superior performance in certain cases by choosing a JavaScript library over choosing the standard right now. And that happens um, for some interesting reasons. For one thing, if I'm trying to use the standard right now, the web component standard, what I... Uh, end up doing is having to polyfill in some features so I can run things cross-browser. Um, what I also end up doing is not getting to leverage some of the uh, other goodness that I have in the land of JavaScript. Uh, things like um, being able to intelligently uh, split my bundles and um, lazy load different components, which has just recently become something that's um, quite attainable to do, at least in the React community. Uh, by uh, just declaratively um, lazy loading certain components. So when they're actually requested, then they get pulled in. Uh, so this can help keep your initial load um, as fast as possible. And that's what uh, is interesting to me. I mean, so when I do plain standardized web components, which honestly I haven't touched um, since I moved over to React because I just found the model um, preferable, but there are things like uh, whether you're in Angular or React, you have this 
model of putting in your curly braces and saying, okay, here's some data that I want to bind into my component. Now, that setup is non-existent in the land of standardized web components. Uh, You have to go in and play the game of putting data into the DOM by using DOM selectors and pulling data out of the DOM using DOM selectors. So you you actually take a step backward in developer ergonomics when you choose to leverage the platform instead. Um, would it be good? I think it would be good if we took also a sec here and just talked about Polymer and web components as a high level, just really brief, you know, like a sort of a 60 second overview of Polymer and web components, because if people have been doing either React or Angular, they might understand the idea of a component there, but how Polymer and web components reflect might not be as clear. Okay. It's also yeah, worth idea. mentioning that we have done episodes on web components. So if you want to hear Rob Dodson or somebody else talk about it in detail, um, just search devchat.tv for those episodes. He's been on Adventures in Angular and JavaScript Jabber talking about them. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's worth doing a, a recap here. Absolutely. So um, and yeah, I'm sure you had Rob on, and when Rob was on, um, since he's, I believe he's a Google developer expert. I know he he spends a lot of time uh, evangelizing web components. He's Rob, a somebody Google that developer. I. There we go. Oh, Google developer. There we go. Just put a period after that. Okay. And yeah, so Rob's great, and I read a lot of his stuff when I was um, uh, getting up to speed on web components. Um, so backing up, the reason that Polymer is useful is it adds some goodness on top of web components. One of the things that it adds that I alluded to just a minute ago is making it easier to bind in data, not having to do things like write a DOM query to be able to say, I want to get my hands on this div and put this text inside of it. With Polymer, you can do something that uh, feels more like Angular, uh, where you can put in your curly braces and just bind in some data into that place. Um, Polymer ends up adding some nice syntactic sugar on top of the web component standard just to make it um, easier to create web components. Um, Polymer also used to bundle in a polyfill uh, that uh, polyfilled uh, the features cross-browser, but that has quite a while back was extracted out into a separate polyfill. So you can make a decision uh, completely separate from Polymer whether you want to polyfill in uh, web components features. Now, uh, when we talk about web components, though, what is interesting, you you rewind the clock two or three years ago, I was really excited about it. And I did a Pluralsight course on it. I spent literally six months of my life, like nights and weekends, pouring over the standards docs and trying examples and working with, at the time, with what felt like uh, there just wasn't many people touching it. So I even had a hard time finding many good examples of it out there. Um, but I was really excited about it and felt like it was going to go somewhere because there were a few things that you could do in web components at that time that we really couldn't do in plain JavaScript. Probably the most compelling thing was this idea of the shadow DOM, which is this idea of encapsulating my styles so that I know they won't leak out across the rest of the page. And everybody's had this happen before. You end up writing a, a CSS selector You want to style just this little part of the page to turn the text red, but you write a selector that is a little too general, and then you accidentally turn all the text on the page red or other sections of the page red. Simple example like that. Well, with Shadow DOM, I could go in and declare that the styles that I'm writing here just apply to this little section of the DOM. 
So you can think about it as encapsulating a piece of your DOM. And that was um, one of the features that just really got me excited because at the time there was literally not a way to do that elegantly outside of using the platform, using the shadow DOM. But since that time, we've seen a couple of interesting shifts in the JavaScript community. One thing that we've seen is CSS modules, which if you're not familiar with CSS modules, it's really a pattern of working with Webpack and telling Webpack that you would like to automatically namespace your styles at compile time. And this is really useful because now with CSS modules, all I have to do is configure my uh, bundler and then I reference the relevant styles at the top of my file. And those styles are automatically encapsulated for that one file where I imported those styles. So effectively, JavaScript's build tooling has delivered us the same power as the Shadow DOM, but I don't have any concerns about cross-browser issues because it's doing it at build time instead. See, even today, if I wanted to encapsulate my styles, leverage the Shadow DOM, it's not something that's going to work cross-browser. It works in some browsers, and there's also been shifts in the specification. Uh, I, uh, I can't remember how long ago it was, um, but the specification did shift to V2. Um, I, I believe it was... Uh, Safari, uh, the Apple team that wasn't a fan of the initial specification. So CSS modules is one way to get that done, to say I want to encapsulate my styles. Another way that you can do that today is CSS and JS. Uh, if you look at React, for instance, there are literally 50 different CSS and JavaScript libraries out there. So the hardest part about this story is just picking one. But uh, the idea of CSS and JS is declaring your styles in JavaScript, and then uh, they all work slightly differently. They have slightly different syntaxes, but the big idea is you write your styles in JavaScript, and then your build process ends up turning that into CSS that the browser can use, and that CSS is encapsulated in a way that helps assure that your components are styled individually, that your styles don't leak outside of that component. So that's kind of the background of how I found myself going from being uh, basically a, a big-time web components evangelist to somebody who now is focused very much on React. Because what I've seen is, while I continue to be excited about the standards, uh, the web component specification, what I see is practically right now, the story with uh, libraries like React, like Angular, like Vue is so good that there's no great incentive for people to shift from those over to the web component standard. So effectively, I've chosen pragmatism over the standard at this point, and I'm, I'm pretty happy where I am. Uh, it really is a lot of fun working in these modern frameworks. Hmm, interesting. So do you think that that means that those ideas, the standards ideas, basically dead? No. I think you ask a really good question. The The standard itself has been embraced at different levels by different libraries. I mean, you look at, look at Aurelia, for instance. Aurelia has worked quite hard to leverage certain pieces of the web component standard. And I find that admirable. You look, for instance, Aurelia uses the template tag to hold parts of their markup. And if you're not familiar with the template tag, it's part of the web component standard that says, if you take some markup and you put it in a tag called template, then it will be completely benign. Whatever you put in there will not be run by the browser until you take that template and you mount it into the component. 
And so, so I find that interesting that I think what we're going to see for the near future is popular libraries leveraging pieces of the web components platform uh, to do things in a standards-based way. But effectively, Angular, Vue, Aurelia are going to be abstractions over the web components standard that add a lot of other goodness. But I also find it interesting, you look at what is arguably the most popular way to do components today, which is React. React has effectively completely ignored the web component standard and um, has at this point on their roadmap no interest in trying to pull in any of those pieces. And I, I think the real reason why is once you've chosen to use a library, uh, the fact that that library uses certain standards pieces behind the scenes it's completely opaque to you. You don't see that choice that they make. And if them doing so doesn't actually buy you anything, then why should they bother? And I think that's that's where things are right now is I look at React and I can't see what piece of the web component standard would fundamentally make React a better component library. So the future is interesting. I mean, I think there's there's certainly a chance that once browsers all support the entire specification, we'll suddenly see everybody shifting over to use it in mass. But it's clear to me so far, I mean, I go to way too many conferences and I can't seem to run into anybody that is actually using the standard in production to build real applications. People continue to reach for the popular JavaScript libraries that we so often hear about on the show. Hmm. So we were talking about reusable components. That was the topic of the show today. Mm -hmm. So how about the libraries themselves? How are they, are they really making truly reusable components? Or are they really are just stuck with their own framework? And if the standards don't really come up and give us something awesome to have, then where are we? Yeah, so th this is something that uh, bothers me as well. Uh, so, so rewind the clock just a few years, and I was somebody that was thinking about writing reusable components for our team in Knockout, because at the time we were using Knockout, we were quite happy with it. Knockout had added a uh, component model in uh, right about the same time that uh, Angular directives were getting quite popular. And... If I had spent much time there, it would have ultimately been a waste. And that same risk happens today for people writing components in Angular, writing components in React, writing components in Vue. But I'm not convinced at this point that you're necessarily safer writing on the web component standard when you have so few people leveraging that standard. Uh, there, there's always the risk that that standard may shift as well. So I, I will say this. What I look for when I'm writing a reusable component is a few different things. One thing is, how big is the community? Um, I look at the React community and I say, there is a massive number of reusable components already out there. There is a huge amount of adoption among Fortune 500 companies. We have uh, Facebook, which has over 40,000 React components in production. So those sorts of commitments help give me a certain amount of, of trust that it would be very difficult for someone like Facebook to move to some large-scale breaking change. While the, the market may shift in ways and interest later, React making a large breaking change is rather unlikely. In fact, um, they, they've shown this to be true 
throughout history as well, that when there are breaking changes in React's API, Facebook releases a code mod. So you can literally go to the command line, run a single command, point it at your, your source code, and it will modify all your code to work with the new version of React if there's any kind of a syntax change. And if you think about it, that's something that they have to continue to do because if Facebook makes a change to React that requires manual difficult changes, it doesn't scale for them. They can't do that in 40,000 different places in these 40,000 different components. So that gives me uh, a lot of uh, safety for the future. I think the other thing that I look for is how much framework-specific syntax is sitting within the component itself. And when I look at React components today, what you're looking at is a function that takes some parameters and more or less returns HTML. Now, in actuality, you're going to put JSX inside a React component, typically. If you're not familiar with JSX, JSX is 99% HTML. There are a few very minor differences, such as saying class name instead of class and saying HTML4 instead of 4, basically because those two words are reserved in JavaScript. But so when we talk about maybe later, fast forward a year or two, and my team has created uh, 50, 75, 100 different reusable components in React. If we end up moving to the hot new library, whatever it may be, our components are really just functions that take parameters and contain HTML. So there is so little there that is truly specific to React that uh, I feel like we have stuck our flag in a place that makes it pretty easy to move it later uh, because there's just so little there that is React specific. I was just going to ask, like, can we back up a little bit? And at the beginning of your course, because I feel like, you know, if you've been programming a while, this might be obvious if you've worked on some large projects. But for people who haven't necessarily done that yet, can we kind of talk about, I think you laid out like 10 or so points as to why we should opt for reusable components. Maybe maybe you don't have to touch on like all of them, but a couple. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, so that's a great point. Reusable components are inherently useful in a situation where you're going to be doing something more than once. And if you think about any work that you do as a software developer, we like to think that every day we're coming in and creating new things, but often it's Groundhog's Day. Often you are creating yet another form that contains a label and an input field and some error messaging and a button at the bottom has some tabs across the top, maybe navigation on the left. As you start to break all of that down, what you realize is there's all sorts of opportunities for reuse. Now, in my course, I go through a pretty simple example. Virtually everybody that's doing software development on the web at some point is going to be creating some forms. When you create a form, on the surface, that sounds trivial. You, you say, okay, I just need to take some data and display it, save it to the database, show a message. But in actuality, there are many decisions that you have to make there. Now, we as an organization sat down and said, we don't want to be making these decisions about forms in a one-off manner. We need to decide once how our forms should operate, what they should look like, where the data should sit. And then we want to encapsulate that in reusable components so it is literally impossible for our software developers to do something that goes against our standard. That's the power of reusable components. Because if you look at, so for instance, when we create a form now, 
there's a few things that we've outlawed. We don't let anybody use a plain HTML label. People don't use plain input tags. People instead use a higher level abstraction that we call a text input. Now, our text input encapsulates a label. Our text input encapsulates the HTML text input itself. And it also encapsulates some other opinions, opinions like the fact that the error message should display below the input rather than to the side of the input, that that error message should be displayed in red. Uh, it also encapsulates things like if somebody decides that that field should be required, then it should display a little red asterisk right up there next to the label. So all of those things, none of those individual things are particularly hard, but as a software developer, when somebody says, I need you to create a contact form, you have to make those decisions. You have to decide if you want the label to the left or to the top, and if you want to put the errors at the top of the form or below each one of the fields, and what colors you should use, uh, how you should handle validation. I mean, I could go farther into all the little nuances that we've built into our fundamental components. Um, so, so that's the real opportunity is avoiding Groundhog's Day as a developer, is instead grabbing higher level abstractions over time. Uh, and so we're in an interesting point. Um, one, one philosophy that I found really useful is uh, the idea of atomic design. Uh, and this is an idea that was popularized by Brad Frost um, in his book by that same name. And I, I walk through this uh, in detail in the course, but what it comes down to is thinking about your component model at different layers of abstraction. And what Brad does is points out that we can use the terminology from science to be able to describe a hierarchy of our components. And at the very base level, we have atoms. Atoms can't be broken down any farther. So for us, our atoms uh, are things like a text input. Because we don't go any lower than that. We don't give anybody a individual label or an individual input by itself. Our text input encapsulates the label and the error messaging and the input itself. Uh, but then you can go up to a higher level from atoms to molecules. Molecules take a few different atoms and put them together. An example of that might be some higher level abstraction like, say, a password input. And that password input might have some extra logic around... Uh, validating passwords or around toggling the display of the password or around showing password hints or the password strength. See, all of those things, again, are the type of thing that you might have to do multiple times if you didn't have a component model. So we've talked about atoms, we talked about molecules, then at the higher level from that is an organism. An organism takes a few different molecules and composes them together. So an example of an organism might be an entire contact form, or it might be a header, or a footer, or your navigation, because that organism takes different molecules and composes them together, and those molecules are composed of atoms. So there, there's no hard, fast rule between those different layers, but the terminology that we use here, I find really useful because when we create tickets, we can say, go create an atom to do this, or let's create a molecule that does this, and we'll leverage this atom and this atom to make it happen. I feel like, you know, the reusability part is super obvious, but, you know, like you said, decision fatigue and stuff like that, that might be something that people don't necessarily think about. So that was, I'm glad that you pointed that out. Yeah. The other thing I like about this approach too, though, is that it's everything is kind of contained at the right level. And so 
if I if I need a text input, I just say I need a text input. I don't have to, you know, like you said, decision fatigue, what color, what size, font, etc. It all just kind of gets encapsulated. But you can do it at the form level as well. And then if you need to customize something at the form level, you can tweak that and then include the right text components so that they just or, or form components or whatever you have in there and have everything just react in the right way based on what you have at the higher level. And so it all kind of comes together in a in a nice way that does what you want it to do. <laughs> Amy, you can go ahead and say it. I see what you did. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> I like that. I was about to say it too. <laughs> yeah, so I, I find it interesting because when we think about taking different components, putting them together, that's that's really just a sign of a mature industry. And we're a very young industry now, especially if you think about front-end development. Software development's been around for decades, but front-end development in JavaScript on the web is in its infancy. But the fact that we are starting to get to this point where we're saying, I'm going to create primitives, and from those primitives, I'll create uh, higher and higher uh, level abstractions that's a sign we're growing up. I mean, you look at, uh, I'm a big car guy. So I look at the automotive industry and I recognize that if I go to out to the Nissan dealer to buy a car and I look at that car, I look at the uh, Bose CD player that's sitting there in the dash. Nissan didn't design transistors and diodes and all the little pieces that go inside that head unit. What they did was they went to a supplier and said, we need a player that sits here. And we just need, here's the dimensions that you have to work with. Give us a component that we can just plop in right here that meets these basic requirements. And that's precisely how we as developers are going to be creating more and more powerful web apps in the coming years is by leveraging each other's good work. So whether that be React components, Angular components, or standardized web components, that's the future. And I I really feel like this episode is sponsored by Newbie Remote Conf. Newbie Remote Conf is a two-day completely virtual conference hosted by none other than Charles Max Wood. If travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. It's virtual. This conference is focused on people who are new to programming who want to learn what the pros know or just get a leg up in getting a job and getting into the programming community. We'll have speakers from all over the programming community to help you stay current in a Slack room where you can connect with speakers and other attendees in real time. We'll also have a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers, plus we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. Early bird tickets are available for $150 until May 12th, and the call for proposals is open until April 28th. So come join us at newbieremoteconf.com. My concern is, I think a lot of people are holding off on building a component library because they're a little concerned about staking their claim on their current library. But I think even now, uh, the benefits outweigh the costs. And if later you end up having to transfer your library to a new technology stack, that's not really that hard. It's, it's largely likely to be a matter of syntax. So I would encourage anybody listening to start talking now with your team about choosing a library that is friendly to this component model and building your own component library so that your team stops reinventing the wheel. Okay, I'm going to ask yet another question here. So I feel like, you know, everybody 
is all on this like reusability bandwagon. But as you point out in your course, and as I've seen like firsthand, it's not necessarily like always a good choice. And I know the mentor that I've worked with in the past, um, just when we've talked about like clean code principles and stuff like that and uh, reuse, like like you, you shouldn't necessarily always reach for something that's super flexible or like implement it the first time super flexible. Like he kind of says like, wait till you see patterns and things like that. And so can you kind of expand on, like you said, when you would want to use like a rigid component versus a more flexible component and like what developers should be thinking before they do their implementation? Yeah, this is my thoughts on this came uh, largely from a blog post that Jeff Atwood wrote years ago that where he talks about the rule of three. And there's an interesting conversation there uh, about how Stack Overflow came to be that they created Stack Overflow. Uh, Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky came together, created this thing, and Stack Overflow took off like crazy, I think, beyond anybody's expectations. So they started thinking, well, hey, we're on to an idea here. Here's a way that we're letting people answer questions. And this this idea is fundamentally useful outside of programming. So why don't we start thinking about creating some other communities that are in different areas? So they did that. They created a server fault and they created super user. And at that point, they had three different communities that were leveraging the same code base behind the scenes. But what they found was when they created that second and that third community, there were a lot of tweaks that they had to make to the Stack Overflow code base to support super user and uh, I'm sorry, it was super user and server fault, I believe, were the first uh, two that they created. And that rule of three also applies when we talk about reusable components. See, if if Atwood and, and Spolsky had taken Stack Overflow and told everybody, okay, we're going to open source our code. Here you go. This is this You can use this to go create other things. It wouldn't have been in a design and in a state where people could easily reuse it. That same thing can happen to us as component developers, that if we try to create a reusable component in a vacuum, bad things happen. And I mean, just recently on my own team, we made this exact mistake. We said, okay, we, we know we need the, we know we need to create this reusable component, uh, for selecting time, but we'll just go ahead and create it. And I think we can probably get it right. And then just hand it off to people. But what we realized was we hadn't really thought through all the edge cases because we didn't do it in the real world. So my, my first suggestion for people is if you're going to do a reusable component, start by solving a specific problem on a given application. What we like to do is, if we think that a component's going to be useful in multiple places, we put it in a folder called reusable right there in our our application's uh, source folder. And in that way, we have a single place to go check to find potential components that we should pull into our library. And we try to follow that rule of three as well, that once we've taken that component and used it in three places, that's a good sign that we should extract it out, put it in our NPM package, and that way everybody has this centralized component to utilize. And at that point, it has been uh, tested. It's been through the fire. People have used it in the real world in a few places, so we can be confident that the API is truly flexible enough. Now, you you alluded to the, the issues with rigidity versus flexibility. Another thing that that we have learned is to start off rigid, be as rigid as you can up front, because opinions are a feature that if you go very far on flexibility up front, you've also 
it, it's like any application. Once you add features, it's really hard to take features away, but it's quite easy to add features later. So if you start with something rigid, it's easier to understand, it's easier to maintain, and you can always add a few more switches later when people are really pushing you. Now, I want to back up a little bit and play a little bit of, I don't know if devil's advocate is the right word here, for, but talking about component reusability, right? Mm -hmm. This is a concept that is not new. Even the idea of web framework component usability has been around for a while. But if you go back beyond before that, the idea of, hey, we need reusable pieces to build applications from, that idea has existed since the 60s, at least, if not earlier. And if you look around in much of software development as C++, areas that have been around for a long time, .NET, even beyond the frameworks that are built, I personally don't think that we see a ton of, hey, we're building, we're, we're at the place where cars are, where I just say, hey, I need a radio, I need a nice radio modules for this car, and somebody can just build it, and I'm, my guys are, my assemble guys or assembly guys are just plugging it into something. I don't think that we're we're there. Do you do you have any thoughts on that? Do you disagree? And if not, why do you think we're not there even in general? And how what does that mean for the idea of reusable web components? Okay, a, a good quote just came to mind that reminds me of this. Have you ever heard the quote that the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed? <laughs> I haven't heard that quote, but that's <laughs> kind have. of funny. Yeah, now I, I wish I could attribute it. I could Google this really quickly. I want to say Tim Berners-Lee. I could be wrong. Uh, or maybe it's O'Reilly. Anyway, can't recall offhand. So I say that because there are teams that are enjoying this today. And the way that they do that is by having a strong UX team, a strong design team that is making sure all the software that is turned out by a given dev shop is consistent and cohesive because the only way that you can leverage a reusable component is if you find ways to reuse it. That seems like a, a non-statement, but in a lot of shops, what I've seen is the reason that we can't reuse code is because every time a new project comes up, people are spinning up their own ideas. They're writing their own special flowers rather than leveraging standards that should have been put in place previously. So we, you're right. I mean, we've had the, the technical ability to do this for a long time. As a .NET developer, we were doing just the same sort of thing back in the web forms days using user controls. And before that, I was doing the same sort of thing to some degree in, in PHP, writing my own uh, MVC framework. I did some of this in Cold Fusion, lots of, of different tech stacks through history. But the thing that's interesting where we are today is... Rewind the clock just a couple years ago, and and Joe, if I said, "Hey, Joe, can you and I share some HTML?" We didn't have a way to do that. There, we'd look at each other, and go, "Well, uh, I don't know how to share HTML with you." And what we've come to realize here recently is that effectively using JavaScript as the ubiquitous uh, piece of duct tape for the web allows us to accomplish these things that the platform isn't letting us do. So today, if you and I said, hey, we want to collaborate and share HTML, the only decision we have to make is, well, how are you going to encapsulate that HTML using a little bit of JavaScript? And you can do that by putting it in an NPM package. And that NPM package 
contains that HTML inside of it. Read, read it out. You look at uh, if we go a little bit farther and we say, okay, yes, I want to share HTML and, and the flavor that we're going to work with here is React or Angular or Vue or Ember, whatever it may be, that gets us far enough down the road that, yes, now we can truly share with each other. So I, I think, to your point, the reason that we aren't like the automotive industry yet is that we just haven't been around long enough for consolidation to happen, for standardization to happen for us to learn from the school of hard knocks. I mean, you look at how quickly things are changing in our industry. It was just a couple of years ago that everybody had pretty much decided that two-way binding was the way to build web applications, and it was crazy not to. And then React came along and shook that up, and people started thinking twice about whether two-way binding was truly um, something that should be gospel. And so today you have different ways of, of thinking about that issue. So I think over the coming years, we're going to see more of that, where we finally get to the point that best practices are best practices because for, for more scientific reasons rather than for this is the current style du jour. Uh, but I, I think, yeah, at the moment, it's unrealistic for us to expect the, us to be like the automotive industry in that level of, of maturity. Uh, but that said, I still believe that we are at this interesting point that probably just happened a year, uh, a year or two ago from, from what I can tell, where it finally makes sense as a dev team to build reusable components in HTML and JavaScript. And the hard decision there is you've got to pick a flavor. You've got to pick Angular or Ember, Vue, React, whatever it may be. And once you've done so, recognize that, uh, yes, two years from now, three years from now, there may be some technical change that you need to make, but I don't believe that that change will be painful enough to offset all the value that you got during this period and the fact that you'll already be that much farther down the road. Because you look at a lot of what we do in software development, the, the syntax isn't the hard part. The, the, the coding, of, coding of a lot of this is the plumbing. The hard part is the design, deciding what the interface should be and deciding how to break down your components into pieces that are truly useful for you. I mean, I look at today, if, if you told my team, hey, you've got to rewrite all your React components and, and move them over to Angular 2, I'd go, oh, well, that's going to be some work. But I also am very confident that it's something we could do in a pretty reasonable amount of time because, again, it's mostly syntax. It's not that they are so fundamentally different that it's it's throw it away and start have no foundation to stand on. So I think the fragmentation that we have in the current uh, industry is both a blessing and a curse. I mean, it's definitely a blessing right now because it's helping us all innovate so quickly. And I think the good news is we're seeing all these different JavaScript libraries the, the core teams are having conversations with each other. I mean, the React team just recently went to Ember's conference. They liked what they saw in Ember CLI, and they came back and they created Create React app so that everybody could have a similarly awesome experience in React that the Ember developers were already enjoying. And lots of the same things have happened in other ways, too, where um, the Ember team looks at what React is doing and says, ooh, we really like um, how you're handling the virtual DOM. Uh, we're going to create our own rendering engine that has some of those same performance benefits. So I, I think we're slowly going to see all of these libraries converge in a way that makes them more and more competitive and also increasingly homogenous. That's a great answer. So let me ask you guys, 
my esteemed panelists. <laughs> are you guys doing any component development right now on your teams? We are, yes. We are using Angular 1.6. So although we are on Angular 1, uh, we are doing components. Okay. How's that going? Oh, we love it. The place that I work, we end up doing a lot of applications that are all like a little bit different, but we have all of our components, like like all of our base components sitting in like a seed application. And then we just go in when we want to like create a new property and we just extend all of those components with like specific functionality that we need. So it's working out really, really good for us. So when you say a seed uh, project, are those components then, are they encapsulated in any way? Or I'm just wondering, are you literally copying and pasting components? No, from... no. So we have the seed project um, and we have like the base functionality in there. And then we, we're using like ES6 and we're just extending those classes and adding like calling super for the functionality that we do need. And then we just implement whatever we need on top of it uh, into there by extending the class. Gotcha. Okay. What about you, Joe? You know, I'm not working on a lot of production projects, so I don't know if I'm the right guy to ask about that sort of thing. I do a lot with my personal development when I built ng-doc. Of course, I did tons of components using Angular 2, but uh, I'm not on a big team where it's where I've got a critical worry about, hey, how do we reuse this? How do we use that, right? Gotcha. Yeah, totally understand that. So the um, w- one thing that we've run into that's been really helpful is us creating a really, uh, Amy talked about this, um, the the idea of a seed project. We have that same idea. We call ours a starter project. But taking all of our opinions about how to do React and encapsulating them in a, a single project that people uh, start up, and then that project contains all of the references to the things that we use. So we, for example, we're a big fan of Create React App, uh, which is the uh, most popular way to get started in React today. It's a project from Facebook. But we needed many, many different opinions on top of Create React App. So what we did was encapsulated Create React App and then added in about 75 different NPM packages that are specific to our needs, that have all the opinions about how we want to do uh, testing and bundling and linting and minification, and and the list goes on. Uh, The other thing that we include in there is a reference to our component library and to our styles, which apply all of our themes. So what happens, though, is uh, when somebody starts up a new project in our shop, If you go into package.json, you will find a single package reference there. And that reference will be to a package called Fusion. Um, We have, that's what we've named our internal framework for working in React. Because really, it's just a name for React along with React Router and Redux and many different uh, libraries that we found useful and also um, our component library. But I would encourage um, others to consider this model of recognizing uh, every time you start a new project, uh, minimizing the decision fatigue that you feel by creating that boilerplate project that contains all of those decisions. So people really just do a file new project and they get all of this automatically. The other benefit of this is you think about we take dependencies on 75 different NPM packages. Well, those NPM packages are changing on a regular basis, making updates, whether they be minor or major. But since we have a single NPM package that encapsulates all of that, we can decide 
okay, it's been a few months. Let's go ahead and look at all the latest stuff, decide what we want to update. We'll update that one NPM package, and then all of our projects out there, we might have shipped uh, a half dozen things uh, out there. All they have to do is type NPM update, and they get that goodness. Uh, so that pattern has been really useful for us. And in the same way, when we do bug fixes for our reusable components, all people have to do is type NPM update to get those new versions. One thing that I'm curious about with some of this, I've been playing with Ionic lately. And so, and for those who aren't familiar, Ionic is a mobile development, but you basically use web technology for it. And so I'm curious to see how this would uh, cross over between the two. I know that there is some of that that you can do with things like React and React Native, even though you're not using the React HTML, I forget what the proper term for that is, system versus like the React Native system for building your views. But, you know, a lot of the rest of this comes together rather nicely and is interesting. So, yeah, I'm also curious, have you done much with mobile to web crossover with these sharing these components? Well, unfortunately... Before we moved over to React, there was a decision made that we were going to do our native applications in native. So uh, we are Objective-C and uh, Java for our Android and um, uh, iPhone apps. So we're out here creating these React components, and it frustrates me because I'd love to see them leveraged on our mobile applications as well. It's just we'd already made those commitments, so mm -hmm. it was too little too late. But now there is a very interesting story. Yeah, Ionic is pretty cool. There's, there's a similar story over in React with React Native that you alluded to. But one thing that I'm seeing people do is use React Native components on the web. And in fact, if you use Create React App today, you can, uh, you can do that right now. It's wired up to work with React Native components. And in that way, you can literally have the same components running on your native mobile apps as you do on your web application, which is a pretty compelling story. I, and I mean, stepping back slightly from this, this is one thing that I love about being a JavaScript developer today is, is there, <laughs> what other languages could I possibly code in where I could write applications for the web, write applications for mobile using things like Ionic, using things like React Native, or native script, um, writing apps for the desktop using things like Electron uh, that I can, again, just leverage my HTML and JavaScript skills to build apps like Slack, apps like VS Code that are sitting there in Electron. It's, it's great. And then for that matter, being able to write, of course, APIs and, and other logic on the server using Node. So that's every place that I want to be, React, or I should say every place that I want to be JavaScript is there and, and has a story. So uh, a pretty good <laughs> pretty good reason to keep listening to JavaScript Jabber. That's that's why I do. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. I thought so. I was pandering to my fellow panelists. <laughs> well, anything else we should touch on here before we go to picks? So uh, I'll say just one final thing. Uh, my challenge to anybody listening is to... Uh, Sit down with your team and have a quick conversation about whether you think components make sense. Look back at the last few months of development and say, if we had a reusable component library, what would be in it? How often have we found ourselves copying and pasting code between different projects? How much benefit would we get out of this story? And I would say, once you've, once you've realized the, the benefits of the component model, uh, both in the way that it makes you think about your application and the way that it helps you move faster and faster over time, I really think you won't go back to the old model. So I'd encourage people, 
investigate uh, reusable components, and whether that be React, Angular, Vue, Ember, lots of interesting ways to get it done. But the the future has arrived. It's uh, the future it's is now. <laughs> yeah. it's, or, just, it's just not evenly distributed. As the Thank Simpsons you, once said, for the sixth year in a row, the future is here. <laughs> yeah, and it looks like they're attributing it to William Gibson. William Gibson. Okay. Anyway, looks like he's an author. All right, let's go ahead and do some picks. Have you ever felt like you're falling behind or that the programming world is moving so fast that it's impossible to keep up? Then there's the issue of where to go to make sure you're up to date. The answer is to join a community dedicated to discussing the latest in JavaScript. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you got JavaScript Jabber all day? Well, you can, kind of. We've created a Slack community for JavaScript Jabber. That means that you can connect with our listeners and guests on a platform you're most likely already using. Plus, we've set up a Keeping Current channel that pulls stories from across the web to help you know what people are talking about. And coming soon, we'll be holding monthly webinars and roundtable video chats to connect with experts in the community and with each other. So come join us at javascriptjabber.com slash slack. Corey, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. Uh, of course, my first pick would be my uh, new course that we've been talking about in this show, which is creating reusable React components on Pluralsight. Uh, just launched, well, as of this recording, a couple days ago. By the time you hear this, probably be a week or two. Um, it is, <laughs> it's a big course. This is six hours. Uh, when I estimated the length of this course, I thought it'd be about two, two and a half, but if you really want to write a reusable component library and and do it well and do it thoughtfully, it takes it takes some uh, careful thinking. So uh, I took the time to really think through the edge cases there, and this is me sharing what I've learned building our own reusable component library over the last year or so, uh, working in React. Um, my other pick is a TED talk that I just saw today from Tim Ferriss that is titled "Why You Should Define Your Fears Instead of Your Goals." Um, it's about 13 minutes long, very compelling. There's a quote in here that um, I found uh, really uh, impactful that says, uh, we suffer more often in imagination than in reality. And that was a quote by Seneca. Uh, but what he shares is how much conveying his fears on paper and saying, here's my fear, here's the reality of what I can do about it, and here's what I can do if things go bad, that that helped him clearly see that his fears weren't worth the amount of weight that he was giving him. So well worth the time. I'd encourage you to give it a watch. Very cool. Joe, what are your picks? All right. So I got two picks. One is I was recently dealing with some uh, stuff for a course that I'm writing. I was trying to use a UI router, with, which is an Angular alternative router. And I was trying to use it while upgrading a course for one or two, and I was having some problems. And I talked to the creator of UI Router and asked him for some help, and he pointed me in some directions, and I'm still was like not getting it. And I kind of reached that point where it's like, maybe it's just not worth it. Maybe I should just not do it or punt. Or maybe I just can't get it to work. Maybe this isn't going to work the way that I want it to. Do. And every time I thought that, I just told myself, no, I'm going to just I'm going to keep on this. I'm going to figure this out. And like. I don't know, two hours ago before this was recorded, I finally got it working after just banging my head. I had to learn lots of stuff and try lots of stuff. So I'm going to pick persistence today for my pick that just the idea of I don't care what it takes. I'm going to figure something out and keep at it. And I know that in my life, I've been blessed a lot by the times when I have taken that attitude and, and just kept with something. 
So that's going to be my pick is Persistence. All right. Amy, what are your picks? Uh, let's see. I have two. Uh, the first one, I was scanning Hacker News last week, and uh, this is a really good thread. Uh, it goes on forever and ever and ever. But um, it was uh, people who completed a boot camp three plus years ago. What are you doing now? So I found it just really, really, really interesting. And I know from personal experience, um, talking to friends and stuff, just like the the vastness of people's experiences uh, is very interesting. So that is my first pick. And then the second pick, it's a ways off, um, but I'm already super excited about it. Uh, but it's NG Atlanta and it's uh, at the end of January of uh, 2018. So uh they have just put like the organizers have put so much effort into this already. Uh, and the speaker lineup, um, I think somewhere, I, I don't know if this is where I heard this, uh, but something was said about like, they were trying to get like diversity, like 50, 50 or something, but they've like knocked it out of the park. Like I want to say the website probably has like, there's like 80% female or, or other like diverse speakers. So uh, this conference looks amazing. I'm super excited about it. So those are picks for me. All right. I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. One thing that I'm going to pick is, uh, so I've been fighting the good fight with podcast editors and getting everything to go out smoothly. And finally, I hired some people, two of whom I knew. Anyway, all, all of them eventually, if you go back far enough, um, I found them or somebody else found them. And then I knew them because they found them on Upwork. And so if you're looking for podcast editors, typically what I do is I put a file up and then I give I give the people that are trying it out, I give three or four people a chance to edit the show and then they can kind of show off what they're capable of. And that seems to work pretty well as far as finding high quality people to do the work. So now I have three new team members, one editor and two show notes writers who also do the transcripts. And anyway, I'm I'm really, really digging that. And it's worked out great. So I'm going to pick that uh, Upwork, Upwork.com. All right. Well, thanks for suggesting this, Corey. It was a really interesting conversation. And I just love the ideas behind a lot of this stuff. Great to hear. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Well, we will wrap up the show and we'll catch everyone next week. Bye. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.